Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is sponsored by FX's Fleischman is in Trouble, starring Jesse Eisenberg. Claire Danes, Lizzie Kaplan, and Adam Brody. This drama tells the story of recently divorced Toby Fleischman, who dives into the world of app-based dating with the kind of success he never had in his youth. Then, his ex-wife disappears, leaving him with their two children and no hint of her return. Effects's Fleischman is in trouble. Streaming November 17th, only on Hulu. Yeah, so narrative nonfiction takes a lot of time because we have to get inside the minds and the hearts and the experiences of people who may not even want to talk about or think about what they've been through, whatever it might be. And then once you've done that, you've emerged with a story that has the suspense and the fears, the all of the emotions that go along with the decision or whatever the circumstance might be, along with the plot line of their lives. And then by the time you come out of that with the context of the world that they were living in, you come out with this full story, but it's the closest that you will ever get to being another person because these are real people. And the people have decided to make this great gift to, to humanity. I think anyone who participates in a narrative nonfiction project is making a gift to humanity by allowing other people to see and to feel and to hear and to be with them in those really difficult often moments as they're going through that. And it's the closest you get to being another, an actual other person. Isabel Wilkerson is one of the great writers of her generation. With her first book, The Warmth of Other Sons, about the Great Migration, and her new book, her second book, Cast, about global systemic racism, the Pulitzer Prize winner explains what it is to be Black with a depth and a perception and a beauty of writing that is rarely seen. These two books are towering achievements, and her writing style is gorgeous. I love her work. And I love talking to her. It's an honor to dig into what went into making these two amazing books. It's Isabel Wilkerson on Torre Show. The novel analogy feels very apt because at times I feel like I'm in a novel. As I said, I can see these people. I can almost taste their food and I can feel their pain. And that's sort of a big part of why, for me, for a lot of people, your books are connecting so deeply because it's not just the informational level and the research, but you're you're hitting our hearts with the quality of the writing. 
Well, I, I, I really appreciate that. And that's why it takes, um, it takes, you actually, when you're doing this kind of work, you're doing the work of multiple disciplines. You know, you are doing the research that a journalist might do, a historian might do, um, an ethnographer might do, all of those disciplines come into play. I've actually, people have actually told me that, um, you know, that they will say, you know, I, I got to know these people and I really love them. And, you know, I, I just, you know, when, when I got to the end of the book, I started to tear up because they were just fascinating people to know. Like they were just, they felt as if, as if they knew them. And so that means that mission is accomplished, that people, um, particularly when people can find themselves rooting for someone who their society has said they have nothing in common with. I mean, that is really the beauty of and the power of what can happen when narrative nonfiction is doing what it what it needs to do to reach mm-hmm. the I'm curious, just as a writer, because Warmth was such a big book, and I want to spend most of the time talking about cast, but right. Warmth is such a big book. It feels from the outside like it changed your life, like like you know, like your you got to look at your life like pre-publication and post-publication. Is that how you see it? You know, it's so hard to separate out what has happened from just from what has happened. In other words, I don't know of what else would have happened. I mean, it just, it took off. It did what it needed to do. It kept me on the road. Um, you know, people would come up to me and they would say, you know, I, I read this book. I had no idea that these things happened. I had no idea. You know, I cried when I, when, you know, Dr. Foster, when I got to the point where Dr. Foster passed away, they would just tell me the things that, how it affected them. And, um, you know, one of the, one of the, you know, biggest compliments I, I saw was some somebody was interviewed in Jacksonville, Florida. It was a woman, a, a white woman, uh, who who was asked why she was out there at the protest uh, after George Floyd. And you know, I, I had nothing to do. I mean, I did not even know this happened. I just ran across this by accident. And the person said, the woman said, I I, I wouldn't have been out here normally, but I just read the Warmth of the Suns. I just read this book called The Warmth of the Suns, and I knew I had to be here. And, you know, that that is um, extraordinary for a work of history. It's it's a work of history when you do the kind of work that I do, where you're making this huge investment of time. It's a it's not just a labor of love. It's a leap of faith because you don't know where the 15 years are going to lead you. You just don't know. And then to have years after the fact, a woman making reference to it. She wasn't you know, she didn't call my name. Uh, she didn't you know, she didn't. I, I, there, was, there was no shout out to me. I wasn't looking for that. And I wasn't expecting it. It's just that it's one of the additional, um, you know, consequences, you know, beautiful things that happens when when you do something that touches people's hearts, not just their minds, but their hearts. Well, I mean, you know, Warmth of Other Sons is your other name, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> we all know we're talking about you, you know. <laughs> Um, you know, I, I, I you know, I, I pray to run into somebody who's reading my book on the trade and you're like, you know, on CNN, like I'm out here because I read that book and it just changed my life. And it, it, it changed a lot of people's lives. It changed a lot of people's minds and their deep understanding. And I think this cast has a similar potential because there is so much information in here and so much perspective in here that yeah. just rewires your brain to see the world in this different way. Um, Can you talk about, I mean, you started to talk about the connection between the two books. Can you talk a little bit more about, because in a way this book grows out of the warmth of other sons. Is that right? 
It does. Uh, you know, I, I was using the word cast in the warmth of other suns. And interestingly enough, even though it's a word that is not a, one that's that familiar to us as Americans, you know, readers just went along with the flow of it. I mean, nobody said, you know, what is this word in here for? Everyone just sort of went along with the flow because uh, because the text, um, you know, reinforced or, or showed that this was an, an accurate word. I mean, it was, it was a world in which it was actually against the law for a black person and a white person to just play checkers together. You know, it was a world where the, 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 the Bible, there was a black Bible and a white Bible in courtrooms throughout the South. I mean, the very word of God was segregated. You know, like the same sacred object could not be touched by hands of different races. That's how seriously invested the Jim Crow regime was in keeping people not just segregated, but with such strong boundaries to protect the purity of one group versus the pollution of the other. I mean, that, that's, those are cast terms. And so readers went, you know, readers just went with the flow of the, the narrative and, and didn't, didn't seem to pause. They just seemed to, to, to go along with it. This book is uh, a deeper inquiry into what that word means. So what, is, what does it mean to actually live in a caste system? And of course, many of the things that have happened in recent years have reminded us of the, some of the aspects of caste that, that, that still shadow us. I mean, I, I would say starting with, with uh, Trayvon Martin, you know, who was, I mean, it's hard to believe it was, that was 2012. That's how long this, you know, this, this more recent awareness from my perspective has been there to connect us to this underlying infrastructure that we might not otherwise see. And that was, you know, not to, not to scale everything to the warmth of the suns, but that was two years after it'd been out. And so that was a reminder because, you know, a caste system is essentially an artificial arbitrary hierarchy in which, uh, in which, you know, you're ranked, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a system of human graded ranking in which human value is assessed on the basis of, of whatever the metric is that determines your ranking. And it determines, you know, your standing, uh, your stature, the respect accorded you, benefit of the doubt accorded you, or suspicion accorded you, um, resources uh, uh, that, that are available to you or are not available to you, assumptions of competence and intelligence and beauty, even all these things are accorded based upon one's placement in the caste system. And one of the things that's, that is uh, characteristic of a caste system is the idea of policing of the boundaries, of, of being aware, hyper-aware in some place, some cases, of where a person is supposed to be, what a person is supposed to be, who is it appropriate to be in this space versus that space. And so if someone is stopped in the middle of their day and surveilled, or the police called on them for sitting at a Starbucks waiting for a friend, or walking down the street, as was Trayvon Martin, to, you know, with you know, after having bought some Skittles, trying to get back, but not back home, but not seen as being um, as, be, as being out of his place in that location. And then someone feeling the right to come in and surveil, police the boundaries for that person. That is what is that's what caste is. I mean, caste. If you think about caste as the apparatus that holds your the fractured bones in place you know, the, the mold that holds you in place, the cast that holds your bones in place. Cast is, is associated with the idea of people staying in their place. In this Jim Crow South, people would say, well, they, they have to be shown that they have to stay in their place. And I stepping mean, out of your place would breach the caste system and threaten it. I mean, one of the 
moments that really hurt me in a good way is when you're talking about the use of violence and terrorism to maintain caste. And so it's been systematically used throughout history from whipping to police brutality to keep us in place. Yeah. That is, that is, well, there are eight pillars of caste that I described, as as you know, if you read the book, which could be a book unto itself, eight pillars Mm -hmm. alone. And each one of them plays its part in, 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 in first justifying through, you know, uh, through religious belief systems or the laws of nature that there's one group that is destined to be at the very top. And usually it's the group that's interpreting the, the text, you know, obviously. Of and, then, and, and that other people are destined to be at the bottom of that hierarchy. So that's one thing that's justifying, justifying whatever it is that they feel they need to do. And then there are such things as it's inherited, you can't escape, you're born into it, which gives a fixed nature to it. And then there's endogamy, which is intermarriage, the ban of, against intermarriage, which is, which is, which runs as a through line in, in all these different hierarchies. And that has, uh, that has consequences beyond just the fact that two people who fall in love are, are prevented from being able to do what human beings should be able to do. It, it has ramifications beyond that because what it does is it curates a society. It reinforces those very lines that have been claimed as distinctive to make one group presumably superior to another group. Then it also further um, creates a wedge between groups that naturally might have been there, but a wedge because the people, particularly those in the dominant group, have no stake, no material or emotional, uh, any stake at all in the lives or well-being of those who are deemed beneath them, who they are told are so inferior that they're not to, you know, marry them, not to, that went along also with not to be involved with them romantically or even make any gesture that would signify that. So all of these, all of these pillars have much greater impact than just the thing alone. And so, you know, you could go and talk about each one of them, but, but all of those are, are, are ways that uh, uh, a hierarchy can create justify, rationalize, enforce, and then reinforce the hierarchy that's been created. So somebody might say, okay, in America, we have slavery, we come out of that, you know, we still have a lot of those things. I mean, I didn't know, you talk about, you know, that shortly after slavery, it was prescribed that you, basically black people could only work in the fields and the laws were structured such that you could you couldn't start a store. You couldn't no. start a business. Um, and I had never known that we were constrained economically in those ways. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. 
one of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast that center black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. But, and I'm sort of answering my own question, but <laughs> is this a conscious thing that there are people who are sitting atop systems and, and communities and saying, these are the ways we're going to maintain this caste system? Uh, or, or, it is, or is it something that just happens? And even when we get to modern days when it would be very difficult to have laws that perpetuate these things, is it so baked in that it just perpetuates itself? Or is it still a conscious layer of society saying, these are the ways we're going to make it harder to, uh, to you know, harder to escape this lower caste? What you described is a very power of hierarchy, is that it was initially, obviously, it evolved. So it was conscious. They made conscious decisions about when they made laws that said uh, a, a white man, a white person, for example, it was having to be a man, but a white person could not have, uh, you know, what they would maybe call sexual congress with a person of a different, you know, with an African. Uh, that that there were that there they 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 evolved laws that were conscious. They were conscious as they were doing it. Um, what the what the uh, the penalties and punishment would be for someone who crossed that pillar of caste as they were creating them. So it took several decades in order to refine and to hone and to create the caste system that all of us have inherited. Once it's in place, and once you have all the justification of the Bible itself, the story of Noah and his son Ham, who happened to have happened to uh, see him unclothed and thus was cursed, and African American people of African descent 
were seen as the descendants of Ham and thus they were fit to or expected to, destined to be the servants of all, that once you had that um, essentially embedded into the, 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 in, the entire culture, and we're talking about before there was the United States of America, we're talking about the 17th century, the 1630s, the 1640s, the 1650s, in colonial Virginia and Maryland along the Chesapeake. So many centuries ago, this became, this became the hardened, um, expected legal framework for the caste system that we have all inherited. Over time, as people have lived out um, these, these inequities, lived out this hierarchy, it comes to be expected. It's passed down through generations. It's passed down through uh, the culture, even in, in, in you know, more recent times, uh, commercials to billboards to who gets killed first traditionally in a movie. I mean, to, in, every, in every aspect of our society in ways that we don't even see it anymore because it's just the way, the, it's just the way that the culture is set up. You know, in, in previous, not that long ago, within the lifespan of the very oldest Americans, there were, you know, there were all of these, you know, if you, if you got syrup for the breakfast table, it was actually of an Aunt Jemima. You know, it was like a Mrs., there's this, this uh, uh, syrup called Mrs. Butterworth that was literally a mammy, literally a mammy. And so this yep. is the way, I yep. mean, this is the people alive today got their, you know, put this syrup that they had to take the bottle and maybe grab her around the waist or around her neck or something. And that's what children put Grab on her around her neck. So you're strangling <laughs> her to get the syrup out of the bottle. Literally, literally. And so this is the way, this is a subconscious way that people are absorbing the messages of who belongs where in a society. So I, I you know, that, that's the power of it. It's not conscious anymore. It doesn't have to be conscious anymore. And that's the reason why I, I think that the this this phenomenon, the, the idea of thinking of it this way, this language allows us to see ourselves differently, see how we interact with one another differently, to see our, ourselves through a different lens that goes beneath what we think we see, what we've been trained to see. Because once you've used language for so long, then you almost can't hear it anymore. And this sort of, it sparks the neurons to think differently and to see, I, I call this book an x-ray of our country. You know, I view myself as a, um, like a, the, the, the building inspector who comes in and, you know, with the flashlight and is looking all in the corners and, you know, you see these stress cracks and you see that this beam is a little askew. I mean, that's what I view myself as coming in as. And you, you know, you're looking at yourself differently because you're, you have different, a different framework you know, through which to understand ourselves and how we got to where we are. You remind me of the the sign and the tweet that I've seen going around a lot the last couple of months that racism is so deeply embedded in the framework of America that when we protest racism, they think we're protesting America because they can't separate the two. Um, this, I found, I found warmth to be hopeful they were moving, they were escaping, they were getting out of the difficult situation. I found this book to be sad, and that is not in any way a criticism. Um, I felt the understanding of the point that it was a caste system felt almost permanent and like you can't get out of it. Do you do you see that? Did you feel this book to be somewhat sad? Do you understand that reaction at all? 
I do. I do. Um, I appreciate what you said about warmth because there are some people who believe that warmth is sad and I don't see it as sad as all, at all. I mean, I don't. I, I don't see it as sad. Um, this one is, it, it's a difficult history. I mean, it, it just is. It's a difficult history. Uh, you know, again, if you are an inspector going into, you know, the, the, the basement of a house, um, there could be a lot of things in there that you'd rather not think about. And that's sort of what this is this is dealing with. But ultimately, if you don't go in there and look and see what's going on, you're going to have to deal with it anyway. I mean, we were we are dealing with these things, whether we choose to understand them, study them, study them, and address them or not. We're dealing with them. We can see it in the news. We you know saw it with, with you know with what happened with George Floyd and before that Ahmaud Arbery and, and Breonna Taylor. I mean, it's just you know the list is so so long and. We are dealing with this whether we discuss it or not, whether we choose to look at it or not. And so I, mean, I, I, I yeah. just want to ultimately think of this as, as hopeful because it's getting, it's looking at the reality. You know, and if you don't look at the reality, if you don't know what is going on, you can't even begin to try to fix it. I mean, I think perhaps part of the difference for me, warmth is a microscope of America. And this is a truly global study. You keep bouncing off of America, India, and Nazi Germany. And it makes me feel like, oh, this is just embedded in human society. And we just happen to be the low rung of the totem pole here in America. Uh, you know, and I, I don't know, I'm sure you've had the experience of we when we go to Africa we are seen as higher because they call us white because we, you know, well, you have one, you know, one white person eight generations ago in Africa, you're white and they look at you as higher. And so, you you know, so it's arbitrary. Or just being American too. Yes. Yes. But I I, I mean, the global nature of this book is also really interesting um, and, and really illuminating. I'm curious as to why, you in your like you 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 base it around this triptych of castes and i was kind of going oh well, where's south africa right because is not apartheid doing the same things was why did you decide to leave that example out so uh you know i decided as you can see from the work that i do i really prefer to go deep rather than wide i mean and the reason is because i, I want to be able to hold your attention i want it to be I want it to be readable. I want you to be able to get deep into it. Um, and I felt that, uh, you know, keeping it to, and also three is a kind of a, it's a classical framework, you know, a three act play and that sort of thing. So it, I just, it seemed to be sufficient to be able to tell the story that I was seeking to, because ultimately this is about America. It's about our country. It's about our history. It's about what can we learn from other places. Now there are references to South Africa, of course. And, um, there's a, 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 uh, an incredible uh, series of books written by George Fredrickson, the sociologist and historian who did an incredible uh, work on looking at the United States and South Africa. And I highly recommend that to anybody who's interested in the topic. Uh, I reference him uh, in, in this book. Um, but I chose to focus in on these two because one, um, uh, the three rather, India and, and, uh, and also Germany, because with India, if you're going to talk about caste, you have to talk about India. So that was that was automatic. And then it was after Charlottesville that I started to look at, at uh, Germany because 
because after Charlottesville, you know, we could see all the symbolism merging with the ralliers, the protesters. You know, they, they were bringing in the Nazi symbolism, symbolism of the Confederacy. They made the connection between Germany and the United States. Germany, you might say, and the Confederacy. And that, you know, that brought my attention to, to Germany to see what is it that they had done in the years since World War II to reconcile with and atone for what had happened in World War II. How do they educate citizens? How do they educate students? How do they, how do they present what had happened? What did, what did they do with that? And the discovery, you know, I was stunned to, to, make, to see all these connections, but of course I was even more stunned to discover the connection between the United States uh, in the years leading up to the Third Reich, the, you know, the German eugenicists who were turning to and consulting with American eugenicists in the years leading up to the, to the Nazi uh, takeover, mm. and the fact that there were American eugenicists who were writing these books that would then you know, were big sellers in Germany. I mean, this is just, you know, just stunning to see. And of course, the Nazis needed nobody to teach them how to hate. I mean, they needed nobody to teach them. <laughs> but they, actually, they sent people to the United States. They sent researchers to the United States to study what had the Jim Crow state, the South in particular, and the rest of the country too, done to subjugate uh, African-Americans in this country. They actually studied the United States. That is mind-blowing. I am curious. I'm curious about what you just said in terms of you're making major structural decisions on the book fairly recently. You said it was a 10-year project, but Charlottesville yeah. was two years ago? Uh, so I'm, 2017. 2017. Uh, well, you turned it in last year, I'm sure, yeah. right? So uh, this Early this year. <laughs> early, early this year. Well, yeah. I want to hear about... 10 years, how, like, how much of that is pure research? How much of that is sort of outlining? How much of that is actually sitting at the computer? Or is it a legal pad? Do you, do you handwrite or is it all computer? Like, how much of the time is it actual writing time? Oh, that's, a, that's such a great question. Thank you. Because that actually answers the question you were asking before. Is it, like I said, the, the main focus was India. Much of my focus, first of all, my, my focus was on what had been said in the United States about caste. That, like, that was the first thing that I'm looking at um, in terms of research. And then India, and then Charlottesville happened, and then that was, okay, you, you got to include, you have to include. I mean, that was, I, I wasn't considering Germany until then. Um, but the, the, the ratio is very high percentage of research to writing. Most of it is research. And then you're racing with the writing because mo most of it is a research. I mean, you can't even, in, in nonfiction in general, as you well know, and then a narrative in, in particular, you don't have anything to write until you've done the research. I mean, you, you know, what are you going to do? You, you got to see all the research before you can start the writing. Exactly. Yeah. So that's why, you know, you have all this there, you know, that you're pulling from, that you're drawing from, that you're mining and, and, pulling and putting in perspective and putting in order because you, you can't start the writing until you have really most of the research done. What does eating healthy mean to you? 
Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market dot com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. So how much time did you actually spend? So this is about 400 pages. How, many, how much time did you actually spend? Is it pen to paper or is it all onto the computer? It's a combination. Um, <laughs> I write on an iPad. Okay. Yeah, I write on an iPad, so I'm taking notes constantly. Something happens and an idea comes to me and I'm putting it in the iPad, I'm putting it in my phone, I mean, putting it wherever, you know, whenever the, the, the inspiration hits you, you know, that's when you, that's when you write that down. I mean, a lot of these things, uh, a lot of observations and the, um, it, it's interesting to hear things that are being quoted now. And I just think, I remember when that, you know, when that came to me and I didn't know what I was going to do with it. And it's like, you have, it's like, yep. pieces, it's like pieces of scraps scrap fabric that you're piecing together for a quilt. That's what it ends up being. And you don't know how it's going to look. You don't know what the design is going to look like in the end. You're just collecting all of this and you hope you'll find uh, use for it, you know, at some point in the process of writing. Is, is it like a year of actual writing after nine years of researching? It was about a year, a year to a year and a half. Yeah, of writing. And, you know, the research never ends. I mean, it's your, your research, research. I mean, the so always, always something comes up and then you're, you're including that. I mean, COVID-19 happened and, um, you know, that I had to, I had to, as long as there's still a way to get it in, you know, I'm going to try to try to figure out how to incorporate that. And I, and I did, I mean, I, you know, I was, it wasn't going to be rewritten, but if it, it's in there, COVID-19 you, is in there. Are, are you, are you a morning writer? Are you an, <laughs> are you a late night writer? Like, when do you really get it done? Well, you know what? Sometimes when you're on a kind of deadline like this, it's an 18-hour day. And when I say deadline, meaning that you've got to get it done, you just got to get it done, especially once it was pretty much done, but then COVID was happening and all these other things could be happening. So, you know, there could be 18, 20-hour days. And I, I mean that. I mean, long, 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 long days. It doesn't matter that you're a morning person or your circadian rhythm doesn't care that you prefer to write at night. You have to do what you have to do, you know, to get it done. <laughs> you know, it's just, <laughs> no, I, I hear that. Um, if left to my uh, own devices, though, I probably, 
would, you know, I'm probably an afternoon, you know, evening person. I'm not, would not be, I'm not one of these people who would get up at five in the morning and, and then they can't, they're, they're good. They're, they're not good for anything after 10 o'clock in the morning. I, I don't, I don't understand. I, that's not me. I, I don't. That's not me. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that that doesn't make any sense to me either. Um, where where do we see it? You have a chapter that is also really painful about the intrusion into yeah. everyday life, and you started to talk about this earlier. But I, I, I've just I wanted I wanted to be tangible for folks because some people would be like, you know, what are you talking about? We have Oprah and Barack Obama, and we're Kamala. We're moving on up. Like, how, where do we see caste in everyday American life? It is, you know, it, it shows up in the places where you least expect it. There are so many examples in that section, as you know. Um, you know, the, the story that I tell, of course, is when I was uh, a reporter, a national correspondent for the New York Times. And I would, you know, made a call to interview this person, this man at, at one of these uh, retail establishments in Chicago. And uh, he was a, he was a manager of the store. And I made arrangements to, to interview all these other people um, all over the phone. And everybody was fine with it. Everybody was excited to be in the, to be interviewed in the New York Times. I interviewed all these people during the day, and then I got to the last one that that uh, late that afternoon. And the place was empty. He, there was no one there. It was a quiet time of the day. And the man I was supposed to interview wasn't there yet. The clerk there says, you know, he should be here any minute. He's running late. You know, you can just wait for him here and he'll be here any minute. So minutes later, the man comes in. Uh, he is flustered. He's anxious. He's running late. He knows that he's he's ex very expectant because he, he knows there's this interview that he's supposed to have. He's very clearly preparing for this interview. So the clerk tells me to go up to him and introduce myself because, you know, this is the, the man. And so I go up to him and I say, you know, hi, I'm here, you know, uh, Isabel Wilkinson with the New York Times interview. He said, I, he, he didn't even hear me. He just said, I, I can't talk to you right now. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting. I'm here getting ready for a very important interview. I, I can't talk to you right now. And I said, I, I, I'm the person to interview. I'm Isabel Wilkerson with the New York Times. And he said, well, how do I know that? And that I made the appointment with you. I'm here to interview you. He said, well, well, do you have a business card? And I didn't have, you know, I didn't have one. It, it was the end of the day. You know, uh, most people don't even ask. And so I, I wasn't even, had not even occurred to me to even necessarily go back and get one just for this one last interview. And I said, no, I, I don't, I don't happen to have one, but we're, I'm here to interview you. You know, we're already running late. You are here to interview you. He said, well, he said, well, do you have some ID? I need to see some ID first. And I said, I shouldn't have to show you ID, but here's my, here's my driver's license and you can see, see my name. And so he said, you don't have anything with the New York Times on it. <laughs> and I said, I am here to interview you. Nobody else is here. We have a 4.30, here it is, you know, 4.45, whatever time it was. We should be in the middle of the interview right now. There's nobody, I am with the New York Times. And he said, I'm gonna have to ask you to leave because the New York Times will be here any minute and I have to get ready for this interview. So I left. <laughs> I had no, you know. I, I, he, Did the he, New York Times ever show up? <laughs> uh, I have to just say no. <laughs> but I mean, I mean, you know, a person, so that told you where his mindset was at. But at the same time, and not to be argumentative, because I fully embrace the thesis, but you are 
you know, Warmth of Other Suns, you are New York Times, you know, you are an established intellectual in America. So in a way, it must, does that not brush off your shoulders as he's stupid and it doesn't relate to me? Or does it continue to say like, this is how they really see you? Well, this was before, well before the Warmth of the Suns. You know, okay. I was I was a reporter at the New York Times. This was years ago, uh, and uh, so no, this was this is not the current me experiencing this. Although I, I could, and it would still not. But still, be- you're you're a New York Times reporter, so you're extremely successful at that point already. Well, I was I was a, I was a young reporter, and I was you know I still the thing. The bottom line is. I needed to do the story. This is an obstruction from being able to do the piece as I had planned to do. And the thing is that he was excited to be in the interview. He had accepted, you know, we made the appointment. I talked with him over the phone. That was fine. He did not make the connection. He chose to not see, despite all evidence to the contrary, that this had to be the very person he was anxiously awaiting to be interviewed by. And he refused to see that. He just refused to see it. And it, and it, you know, it, it, if he hadn't been running late, it would, it, his running late made it all the more astonishing because the person, you know, he had, we were well into the time frame when we should have been interviewed. That, that was one of the things I said, is that we're supposed to be in the middle of an interview. Like we're wasting time talking about this when I should be interviewing right now. So, you know, it, it, to me, that story, that experience taught me how embedded and fixed and unshakable the belief systems are about who should be doing what in our society, who you would be expecting to be in this position, and how firmly it, it gripped he was in this belief that he actually didn't get the very thing that he wanted. And of course, from the perspective of someone like me, um, it was, it was kind of, I was flummoxed because I'm just thinking this is, you know, that is, there've been, uh, there've been other times where people did not expect me to be, uh, who I was. And they might, uh, one general response is to ask you a lot of questions. Like, where did you go to school? How long have you been there? There are all kinds of things that they will ask as if they put you in a mini, as if you're now in a mini interview and they don't, well, it's, 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 a, it's nature. It's not it's even a resume check. I want to, I need to check resume. your resume. Which yeah. also is like, I need to check your free papers to make sure you belong here. That's the more common experience. I was accustomed to that. What I wasn't accustomed to was just someone just flat out not even, just not believing it at all. And um, and, and, and I, I, I did not, because I'm, I've been a journalist for so long and I've been trained to not talk about, and you don't talk about things you uh, have experienced because that's not the point. That's not the story. You don't want to be in the story. You don't want to ever be the story. I really was not looking to be speaking about these things. These are not things that I was um, anxious to be talking about. But I included them because they were they, they give you insight into kind of the banality of these intrusions and how it can come out of nowhere when you're not expecting it. And in the end, everyone is hurt by it. He was hurt because if he wanted to, he wanted very clearly to be in the New York Times, so much so that he asked me to leave so he could prepare for the paper to come. He really wanted he wanted to be in it. I, you know, wanted to include him. I didn't, he wasn't necessary, wasn't it was a story that involved many people. And so he just was one he was just it just he didn't make it in the story. But and the story was fine in the end. 
but it, it shapes you in the myth and when it occurs, you know, you have to think, you know, what, what is it that just happened? Why would he, why would he not recognize us? What, what, what is it? You know, what is it? I mean, you, I, to- I, you know, I had a similar, um, a very similar situation in that uh, Rolling Stone sent me to interview Coldplay before they were big, big, right? The, the beginning of their second album, they were big, but they were not gigantic. And I had been agitating inside the building for like, let me do the white acts too, because I could do any hip hop act I wanted. I could do any R&B act, but a rock act was like, really, can you do it? And I'm like, of course I can do it. They could play music. I could talk about their music. Like, come on. And I remember showing up and the manager definitely had a face of like, you're the guy. And like, what do you know about rock and roll? Like, do you know rock and roll? Like, can you do? And I, it was like one or two kind of very basic questions. We we're kind of like, are you, are you sure? Like, do you know rock and roll? And I was, and it, and it, it, it definitely shook me a little. I mean, I remember it to this day and it definitely shook me a little of like, you know, they don't think you can do the job and the guys back at the office aren't a hundred percent certain either. And if you don't have rock certain uh, solid confidence in yourself, then you're going to, you know, now we're getting the stereotype threat of like, y'all don't think I can do it. Now I'm trying to prove it to you. Whereas, you know, the other white reporter is just doing the job because he doesn't have a confidence crisis or something else to deal with. And yeah, I mean, that's the extra price of racism that we're paying all the time. Exactly. That's exactly it. So it, it does a, it, it erodes the confidence of people who otherwise would just be able to go about their, their work like anybody else. You have to sit and it drains energy because you have to think about what is it that just happened? Why did they say this? What was that about? And, you know, no one is looking. The main thing is that no one is looking to be playing what they call the race card. I mean, nobody, you know, nobody wants to think about these things intruding into their ability to just do something basic as they go about their day. You, you know, you wake up every morning, you want it to be a good day. You want to be able to be successful and you want to be happy. You want to, you know, you want to, you want your latte to be made exactly how you want to at Starbucks or whatever it is you want. You know, you want things to go well. You're not looking for something to go wrong. You're not looking, you're not hoping and looking and having, so now I can use this to do this and do that. In fact, it's the kind of thing that, that uh, as you were saying, I mean, um, you don't want to dwell on it and you certainly don't want to, uh, you know, uh, broadcast, you know, these things happening because you don't want anyone to think you can't go and do the job. I mean, it was, I ended up having to just go ahead and, you know, let the, let it roll off my back and focus on, you know, getting the story done, not let that draw the energy away from what I needed to do, just shake myself off and then get the story done so that I could do the job that I was sent to do. It, it was, the, and it, these kind of things can happen and come out of nowhere and they can happen with sufficient frequency that if you stopped every time something like this happened, you wouldn't be able to do your job. So you just no, you soldier through when you get it done. You, you remind know? me, also of um tina brown was once having a salon at her house and she had invited um and the name is escaping me but one of the there was a year i believe when uh, it was an african sister had won i believe it was the nobel peace prize right i think they sort of split it between three women and she was one of them and you know it was an early morning 
salon, like 9 a.m. So I had to get up way earlier than I normally would. And I'm, I'm, I'm almost there on the Upper East Side in a suit and tie. And I hear behind me, nigger. And I turn around like full of anger. And it's a homeless person. And, you know, I'm still triggered, but I'm like, I'm going to Tina Brown's house to celebrate the sister who just won the Nobel Prize. And you're going to be here for the rest of your days. So why should I, you know, and I'm, I still had the feelings, but it was like, I don't need to deal with this at all. Right. And in many of these situations, some of us who are fortunate enough to have some credentials that we can stand on can say like, I am, I am succeeding. I am doing what I want to with my life, with my career, with my family. And I don't need to respect you, Karen, trying to knock me down in this store or on this street or what have you. Oh, I totally agree with you. I mean, there has to be a prioritizing of what and recognition that not all of these are the same. Uh, what I would what I'm saying when it comes to past as a as a phenomenon is that it's much more destructive. It's much more intrusive when it's getting in the way of your doing your basic job. I mean, here is a situation where had I really been relying on him and this is someone I absolutely needed to. I, he was kind of optional. Thank goodness. But had he not been, it would have been a bigger issue. And so uh, if you multiply this, something, what happened to me on that given day times millions of times in a given week that it might happen to someone who's from a marginalized group who is disrupted in the process of their do, trying to do their job and thus having to process it, whatever time that might take, whether it's five seconds, five minutes, five hours, or five years where people are still processing it and still having to soldier forth, what is the, F, what is the effect on a society when you have millions of people disrupted in this way? And these are pretty benign. I mean, what you know, the case of, say, the people who were you know, waiting at a Starbucks for a friend to come in that they were perhaps going to be doing business with and the police are called on them, that is a completely different level of, of disruption to one's life. And yeah. so um, I'm saying that when these things happen enough times in a society and millions upon millions of millions of people are affected by this, it's not just them. It's also their companies. It's the, uh, the people that they're interacting with. It's transactions that, are, that may or may not be happening as smoothly or at all. And so when you multiply this times, you know, all these people in this entire society, it, it has a drain on productivity. It has a drain on well-being. It has a drain on people's health. Um, you know, it, it affects so many spheres of life. And I, this is, that's just one aspect uh, of how caste can affect us in ways that we may not see otherwise. You talk about the drain of productivity. I think about all the uh, 16-year-olds who are able to run uh, multi-million dollar crack operations on the street on you know in their head if they had been able to get into fortune 500s you know or become entrepreneurial in the above ground sense like who knows what they could have done you conclude the book um talking about a world without caste is that possible or is this human nature and really can we get to an america that is truly without caste or is it too deeply baked in to get beyond? I believe that it is deeply baked in. You know, it's, it's a 400-year-old hierarchy, and we live with a, with the, in, under the shadow of that hierarchy. Um, but I, would, I, just, I wouldn't have written it if I didn't believe that there was a, a chance that people could transcend this. You can't 
fix anything if you can't see it. And that's why I'm seeking to, uh, you know, shed, shine a light on the, this infrastructure that we otherwise wouldn't be able to see and, and to at least allow people to know what it is that we've inherited. You know, like it is, like I said, with that old house, you know, if you have inherited an old house, you don't know what you're in for. You did not build it. It's not anyone's fault that, that we have inherited this, this, not anyone alive. It's not the fault of anyone who's alive as to why we're in this, uh, in this hierarchy that we've inherited. But once you become aware of it, like once you get the report from the inspector and you can see what's going on with the old house that you are now occupying, then it is your responsibility. Then it does fall upon all of us to, you know, to take the time and be invested enough to care enough to want to know what is going on in this old house that we call our country. And it's not going to be one person. It's not going to be, you know, one um, group. It's got to be everyone. And I think that, uh, especially for those who have um, had the the luxury. Uh, of not having to live with this every day, of, of the luxury that they may not even realize the luxury of not having to think about this on a daily basis as people are marginalized do. It, it, it really, the, the responsibility uh, might be even higher the more resources one has and the greater the luxury one might have. Uh, the responsibility of, of taking the time to actually know our country's history. I mean, one of the things about it is we're not on the same page about basic things that happen in our country. You know, what was the Civil War actually about? What happened after the end, of Re- the end of Reconstruction? How did we get to the point now where African-Americans who had been shut out legally from the American dream until ni- the 1960s? That means the, the parents and grandparents and great-grandparents of most every uh, Black person in this country up until the 1960s had restrictions on them on such basic things as just getting a mortgage due to redlining. And so how did we get to the point where now um, people who uh, African-Americans now have uh, one-tenth by some measures and some measures less than that uh, of the wealth of their white counterparts? When I say white counterparts, I do not mean the poorest black person having one-tenth of the wealth of the wealthiest white person. It's one-tenth of the wealth of your counterpart. So that middle-class educated black people have one-tenth of the, the wealth of their white counterparts. And education is not even sufficient to bring African-Americans up to the same income level, much less wealth level of their counterparts. So how do we get to this point? And how do we get to a point where if under current projections, um, if we were to continue as we are, it would take 228 years for African-Americans to reach economic parity with their white counterparts? How did we get to this point? So we have to get together as a country on, on actually what happened here to get us to this point. We all need to get to the point where we know what happened at the beginning of the movie now that we're in the middle of the movie. We're in the middle of the movie. We're not near the end because Barack Obama and Kamala Harris are doing very well. We're still in the middle of the movie. I know it may be another 10 years before we get another Isabel Wilkerson book. Um, Do you have a thought? Have you started? Is there an, an inkling of what the next one might be? I, I do, but you know the thing is, I'm still processing this one. I mean, this one. I, I mean, I literally, as I'm talking, I, I kid you not. I mean, I am still processing what was, uh, you know, a really intense immersion in a history that not enough of us know well. I mean, I, I just I made discoveries, heart wrenching ones that I, I didn't even know I was going to find 
So I'm still processing this one. And, and I, and, you know, once I've finished processing this one, then I'll, I'll get back to the next one. But I'm hoping that, you know, I'm getting better. The person was 15. Now we're 10. So maybe, you know, I could do maybe five. Thanks so much to Isabel for a great interview and thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality and this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhull. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Chanta Covington. Our booker is Claudia Jean. And we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Friday and on Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down.